have your place there in Psalm 8. One thing I love about vacations is not the unfortunate ones where they're cut short, but it puts you in environments and places that you're not accustomed to, so you're more aware of your surroundings. And uh, thanks to my wife, she encourages us to go on vacations to places that we would not normally see or experience. And I remember a couple of years ago, we joined her family on a trip to Wyoming, Cody Ranch, and got to uh, go to Yellowstone National Park. I'd never been there. And uh, we flew halfway, and then we drove the last half of the way. And I remember we were driving out of, I think it's Idaho Falls, Idaho. I, I didn't even know Idaho existed. I'd seen it on a map, but never heard anything about it. And uh, we were leaving Idaho Falls, heading east uh, into the park, and it was incredible. The scene was beautiful. I've never seen more beautiful landscape. And as we got out of the city and into the hills, the hills began rolling and greening and growing. And I think it was a Sunday morning, so we were listening to a sermon as we drove and listening to worship music. And it really was worshipful. Creation stirred within us or enhanced our worship. But there was another time, and I feel like I do a pretty good job of appreciating God's creation. I I love the Texas skies when they turn all the colors, and uh, I love the turning of the leaves in Arkansas, and I feel like I'm pretty aware of those things. But I don't know that creation has ever gripped me as much as it did probably 12 years ago or so. We were still in Arkansas, and I had been up late uh, working on a, it was a Saturday night, been up late working on a, a lesson or a sermon and had gone outside after midnight just to stretch my legs, get some fresh air. And I remembered that there was a reported meteor shower going overhead. So I went out to see if I could see anything. And I think I saw uh, something in the sky shoot around. But just in being out there and gazing up in the sky, uh, it just got me to thinking of the expanse of the heavens And, you know, suddenly I kind of reversed my thinking. And, you know, if I were up there looking down, you know, I couldn't even see me. I'm a speck on a speck flinging around in a solar system in a galaxy. And the psalm, words from Psalm 8 came to my mind. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and moon that you have put in place, What is man that you are mindful of him? And for a a brief moment, and I don't want this to sound more spiritual than it is, but for a brief moment, I literally lost my breath, caught up in the rapture of God's creation and his mindfulness of me. I I wish I could say that happens every time I appreciate creation, but it doesn't, and it hasn't. Maybe it will again. But that's what we're seeing in Psalm 8, is that David is in his expression of God's creation and our relationship to that is meant to take our breath away. It's meant to cause us to stop and think, and I'm going to suggest in a minute, he gives us whiplash, and I'll explain what I mean. Psalm 8, Derek Kidner, the commentator, says this, that it's an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. It celebrates the glory and grace of God, It rehearses who he is and what he has done, and it relates us in our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. And I think he's right. 
It's a short psalm, but it packs a lot. Or John Calvin said of this psalm that David, reflecting upon God's fatherly benevolence toward man, is not content with giving thanks for it, but is enraptured by the contemplation of it. And may it be so with us. May we be enraptured this morning by the God and creation of Psalm 8. We've often said when we go on vacation and we post our pictures to Facebook, we'll say the pictures really don't do it what? Justice. I don't know that any sermon could do this text justice. And so I don't want to try to impress you with a sermon, but I also don't want my sermon to impede your view of God in this psalm. So let's take a look at it. It is a psalm written by David. It says that there in the superscript. It reads, according to the Gittith, it's written to the choir master. Gittith is probably a musical term or a musical instrument or possibly a a feast in which music was involved. But nonetheless, this is a hymn or a psalm of praise. It's meant to be sung. And in this psalm, I'm seeing that David is using three sharp contrasts to magnify God's majesty. So maybe that could be our our big idea. Three sharp contrasts to magnify God's majesty. And I'm using the word contrast. I'm not using the word comparison because a comparison takes two things and says, let's see what they're like. Let's see how they're alike, right? But what does a contrast do? It takes two things and says, let me show you how different these two things are. And those three contrasts in this psalm are going to create in us, I pray, humility, but also give us a sense of dignity and leave us with an understanding of majesty, as we sang this morning. And in this comparison or this contrast of big and small, of great and tiny, of humans and heavens, it will give us whiplash. We're one minute looking up at the greatness, and the next moment David has us looking down at the tininess. One minute, we're, one minute we have huge thoughts, the next minute we have belittling, humbling thoughts. And so it's spiritual whiplash, or sometimes I like to describe it like a head rush. When you get up too quick after looking down, all the blood rushes from your head and you get woozy. And that's what I experience when I read through a psalm like this. Let me give you the three contrasts, and then we'll, we'll back up and take them one at a time so you can fill in your blanks in your bulletin if you want to do that. Contrast number one is a contrast between infants and enemies. Infants and enemies. Contrast number two is between heavens and humans. Between heavens and humans. Contrast number three will be between under and over. I'll explain that in a moment. Under and over. Infants and enemies, heavens and humans, under and over. Let's begin with verse 1, which is really a prologue to the psalm that's repeated as an epilogue to the psalm, or let's just call it majestic bookends to this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is where he begins. This is where he ends with majesty. He gives God's name and he gives God's title. Oh, Yahweh our Adonai is how it reads. Yahweh is God's name. 
who he is. Adonai is God's title, what he does. Yahweh is God's personal name. Covenant-keeping, self-sustaining, self-revealing, need-nothing name of God, Yahweh. And Adonai means our king, our governor, our sovereign, all with capital letters, by the way, our Lord, our master. O Yahweh, our Adonai. This double whammy here, this kind of double shot or one-two punch of God's name is only used one other time in the Bible, and that's in Nehemiah 10, verse 29. God is addressed as, O Yahweh, our Adonai. No other place in the Bible except here in Psalm 8, and it bookends this psalm. And then he says in verse 1b, we're not even getting into the contrast yet, You have set your glory above the heavens. So your name is majestic in all the earth. Your glory is set and seen above the heavens. To quote Charles Spurgeon, he said, David can't express it, so he just exclaims it. That's what he's doing here. God's majesty is his nobility, his might, his magnificence. And it's in the earth, and it's above the heavens. In other words, it's everywhere, amen? Everywhere. If I could borrow a quote from a dead theologian and manipulate it to make it my own, let me say it this way. There is not a square inch in all of creation that does not cry glory. That's what David is saying. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm 19, verse 1. In Revelation, around the throne, chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power and wisdom, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. David's prayer to dedicate the temple in 1 Corinthians 29, uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, he prays, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Why? For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. You made it. You owned it. It's glorious. It's majestic. David is coming in hot, isn't he? He is coming right out of the chute, blasting. Are you ready? Are you holding on? Contrast number one, verse two. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Contrast number one, infants and enemies. Infants and enemies. Does he really mean babies and infants here? Yes, he does. Small children, young children, babies, and these infants here is literally nursing Infants. The word translated infant here comes from the root word to suck. It's talking about a nursing infant, the youngest of babies, the most pure of babies, the most precious of babies, the most vulnerable of babies. Babies and nursing children, he says. And who who does he contrast them with? Foes and enemies and avengers. And he's not talking about Marvel comics. He's talking about those who seek vengeance by violence. He's talking about enemies 
hostile ones, those who attack. He is contrasting babies and nursing infants with foes and enemies and avengers. What do they do? What do the babies do to the avengers and the enemies? It says babies and infants will still them, stop them, cause them to cease and desist, cause them to be put down, to come to an end, to perish or even die is the meaning behind that word still. Babies and infants. Maybe you're familiar with this passage because Jesus actually quotes it in Matthew 21. By the way, Psalm 8 is quoted quite often or at least alluded, quoted and alluded to in the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew 21, you don't need to turn there, you're familiar with the passage, is where he enters the temple and he sees the money changers cheating people, swindling people. He turns over the tables, he drives them out. We all say that that's the, the time when we see the anger of Jesus displayed. What's interesting is that I think Jesus does demonstrate anger. It never says that Jesus is angry. It says that there's someone else angry in that scene. Let me just read you verse 15 after the tables are turned. It says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and they heard the children crying out to him, Hosanna, the son of David, they were not just angry, indignant. So there was anger going on here. Jesus, I I think we could say that was righteous anger, but he calls out the scribes and the priests, and they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? These children? And Jesus says, yeah. Have you never read? And now Jesus is going to quote Psalm 8, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, You have prepared praise. Now, hang on a minute. You said Jesus was quoting Psalm 8, and he didn't get it all right. Psalm 8 says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you steal the enemy and the avenger. Boys and girls, if Jesus was in Awana, would he get credit for reciting this verse? Did he get it wrong? Is he going to get a help here? No, of course not. Jesus was quoting the first half of the verse, and applying it in another way when keeping with the idea of the verse. In other words, what's the point here? The point is that David says in Psalm 8, and Jesus says in Matthew 21, that God will use the mouths and the words of babes to establish his strength and to exclaim his praise. Or in other words, he uses the weak to confound the strong. That's what he's saying here. God does big things with small people, doesn't he? He does lofty work with lowly people, doesn't he? He says in Matthew 18, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. He says in Luke 14, 11, whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1 for just a moment. I want to show you something. 1 Corinthians 1, while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 1, Let me remind you of something Paul said just a few chapters later when those uh, believers were becoming puffed up and proud of themselves and proud of some of their preachers and teachers, favoring one against the other, thinking they were something, and Paul said, you guys are nothing. We are nothing. 
Paul says, we're fools for Christ. You think you're wise. We're weak and you think you're strong. We're in disrepute, but you want to be held in honor. Paul goes on to say, we have become like the scum of the earth, like the refuge, the trash, the throwaway of all things. Paul said, Paul, Paul says, God uses the lowly things in the world. But in 1 Corinthians 1, he says it another way, talking to the same church, so we kind of see the underlying problem here. Look at what God uses to do great and mighty things. Notice the contrasts in this passage. Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made... Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. How does God combat worldly wisdom? With foolishness. We could put that in air quotes. The foolishness of the cross. Jews demand signs, verse 22. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's the contrasts continued. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. I can relate to that. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why does God do this? Verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. If we leave this Psalm 8 or this text with our chest strutting out, we've missed it. He does this so that no one will boast in the presence of God. Verse 31, if you want to boast, boast in the Lord. It's important that we're taught here in Psalm 8 of childlike inability that is required to bring an end to the enemies. It's important that we see that weakness is required to demonstrate God's strength. It's important to see that humility is required for exaltation. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians. Who who is sufficient for these things? When it comes to ministry, when it comes to serving serving the Lord, how often do I ask myself, I'm not enough. I'm not sufficient. I'm inadequate. Yes, but where does our sufficiency come from? From the Lord. From the Lord. Do you think Moses felt sufficient that we're learning about in Exodus? Who did God use to deliver his people from Pharaoh the tyrant, the stuttering, stammering, murdering fugitive Moses? Who did God use to defeat the Midianite army with not 22,000 but dwindled down to 300? He used a faithless and fleecing Gideon? 
Think he felt inadequate? And he did that by blowing horns and smashing jars? Speaking of horns, Joshua at Jericho? How did he defeat and lay down the walls at Jericho with a bulldozer? No. March around it six times, and then on the seventh time, seven priests with seven trumpets blow your horns, shout out loud, the walls fell flat. Do you think those bugle boys were strutting around saying, did you just hear me? No. They were amazed at the majesty and power of God in their weakness. Well, should we still be tempted after this first contrast to rely on our own strength, to trust in our own sufficiency, to think too much of our own significance? Should you still be tempted to do that? This next contrast should further shut our mouths in shock and awe. We go from contrasting enemies and infants to heavens and humans. Look at the next verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. Let's stop right there. Let's look at the heavens for a moment. It's, it's easy to imagine David writing this, isn't it? He was a shepherd. He spent long and lonely nights in the fields gazing up at the stars. Just like the shepherds in Luke 2. The shepherds were out watching their flocks by night. He's laying down. He's looking up, gazing at a starry sky that is unpolluted by the distracting city lights. David didn't need a telescope, and he didn't need... Hubble images to know that the universe was big and he was small. Amen? You ever done that? Boys and girls, you ever laid out in the backyard on the grass? Or we used to, with the girls, we'd lay on the trampoline and look up at the starry sky. When they were little, we'd look up, and I can't remember the little song or little rhyme that we would, we would sing or say, who made the stars? God made the stars. Who made the moon? God made the moon. Who made the earth? God made the earth. And I'd say to the girls or to AJ, and who made you? God made you. That's what David is doing. He's staring up at the galaxies. I love his poetic expression. These heavens are the work of your fingers, demonstrating the ease at which God created the universe. Now, we know that God didn't even use a finger to create the universe, did he? No, he didn't. If you're in Awana, where are the Awana kids? Raise your hand, Awana kids. You learned last year, say it with me, that in six actual days, God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence from nothing. Our Awana kids learned that God created ex nihilo by divine fiat. Say what? Ex nihilo means what? Out of Nothing by divine fiat, the word of his power. God said, Genesis 1, and there was. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Psalm 148, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, you waters above the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded... And they were created. David 
contemplated the expanse of the skies with his limited knowledge and was in awe. How do you respond, beloved? When you look up into the skies and see the galaxy, how do you respond? How do others respond? In an attempt to mock Christians, there is a now a kind of a popular tweet on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, but I don't use Twitter. But I remember seeing this tweet. And this tweet, you can find it today on the Twitter account of the Atheist Forum. The Atheist Forum. It's a real group. They have a Twitter feed. And pinned at the top of their account so that everyone can see is this quote. I'll put it on the screen there. You can look it up later. But they say, Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you, L-O-L. And by the way, that doesn't mean lots of love. What does that mean? Laugh out loud. They're mocking us. They're laughing at us that we believe this. And aside from the age of the earth, I believe what they said. I think that's a pretty good assessment. Don't you? And so this tweet has garnered thousands of replies from other atheistic amens, but also from a lot of Christians saying amen. But I think the best response to this tweet on the atheist forum was from some no-name, unknown believer who said in seven words, and this is why we praise him. But I think there's even a better response. That's a good one in response to our response to God. We praise him. By the way, I would probably say that his number one reason of creating all those things was for his what? Glory. And number two, the best way God gets glory is in relationship with his creatures. So I disagree with them in one other way. And so while this is an excellent response to verse 3 in our relation to God, there's even another response to verse 3, equally important, and it comes in the form of a question in verse 4. Read with me in verse 4. In fact, let me read 3 again just to ramp up to this. When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. So we're looking up. What does David do? Immediately whiplash. He looks down. What is man? What is man? Literally, he's saying, what does someone like me have in common with someone like you? What's the answer to this rhetorical question? Nothing. What is man? Nothing have nothing to do with you. You are mighty and majestic, and I am a mere man. He's asking the questions that we've all asked all of our lives. What am I? Who am I? Where am I? Why am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What does it mean to be a human being? What is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of my life? Have you asked those questions? If you haven't, you will. I could talk to the teenagers for just a moment. You're about to start grappling with these questions if you haven't already. Children 
naively believe everything their parents tell them growing up. They believe what they hear from the pulpit. They believe what they hear in the children's wing, the good things about God. And then they start getting older and they start developing a sense of logic and they start realizing, wait a minute, I want to think about this. Why would God do this and he make this and he go there and I'm here? And you start grappling with these questions. And I think it's good to grapple with those questions. You need to come to a biblical understanding of answers because I can assure you, my friend, those of you who are in college or going to college, you're going to get answers to this question. And they're going to be wrong. And if you're going to ask yourself the question, why was I created, at least do God a favor and ask him why. Don't listen to everyone else. We must have these moments within ourselves as we contemplate the vastness outside of ourselves of lostness and helplessness and even moments of hopelessness. Why? We don't want to become like Job and his friends who spend 40 chapters navel-gazing and pontificating amongst ourselves only to have God show up and speak up and put us in our rightful place. You know what happened. You get to chapter 40. Job finally says, okay, I admit I am nothing. I've said a thing or two, but now I'm going to shut my mouth. And God says, buckle up, big boy. I'm going to take you for a ride. Where were you when I made all this? John Piper said, God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. As Pastor Chris prayed, God made everything glorious to make much of him, not to make much of you. Now, in keeping with this contrast of the heavens and the humans and the glory and the expanse of his creation, David gives us another whiplash moment jerks us back down from up high to everything and God's majesty and creation and down low to man's insignificance and then back up again because David reminds me that I actually do have purpose and I do have value and I do have meaning and so do you, but it's not found within yourself. It comes from outside of you, amen? Look at what he says in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, just another way to express our humanity, that you care for him. God is mindful of you, dear one. He cares for you, beloved. Do you see that? This word mindful, it means to remember or recall or call to mind, usually affecting your feelings, thoughts, and actions towards somebody. Again, quoting John Calvin, he says this mindfulness signifies the same thing as that God bears toward in fatherly love, defending his creature, cherishing him, and extending his providence toward him. Another commentator said it this way, it's God remembering and implying, and it implies his movement toward the object of his memory. Now again, just as God flinging the stars with his fingers, he didn't use his fingers, and God doesn't remember in the sense that he's likely to forget. These are just human phrases used to describe God-like characters. The fancy 10-cent word is anthropomorphic. It's an anthropomorphic term. It's a human form term to describe 
God. He doesn't forget, but he recalls us to mind and leans in towards us. So I'm trying to think of an example of what this would look like for us. Maybe this would be close. You, you know someone, a family or a friend, who is, who, who is suffering greatly, grieving or suffering. You are extraordinarily burdened for them. You know what I'm talking about? They're always on your mind constantly. You're praying for them continually. You're reaching out to them repeatedly. You're calling. You're texting. Your mindfulness of them is because of your love for them, and it occupies your thoughts of them, and it moves you to be there for them. You know what I'm talking about? You've done that. I know you have. You love in that way because you're mindful of those people. But we would admit those are kind of seasonal and situational times, aren't they? It's not every day that you're doing that. But when the need arises, you're there. But beloved, this is how God thinks and acts toward us all the time, leaning toward us in his mindfulness. Not only mindfulness, but he cares for us. This word care carries the word mindful even further. Some even translate it, he visits us, because it includes what some say is divine intervention that changes our destiny. No matter how frail, Alan Ross says in his commentary, no matter how frail or insignificant people may seem, God intervenes in their lives to set in motion the plan he has for them. Need I remind you, beloved, that this is the same God that flung the stars with his fingers. He cares for me. He's mindful of me. David says, you think you're nothing? You are. You're nothing. But do you think no one cares? You're wrong. You're wrong. God cares. He is mindful. He leans into you. He visits us. How do you respond to something like this? When you read this about the glories of God and the insignificance of man, maybe we respond with the psalmist in Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The psalmist says, I will lift up the cup of my salvation. The only thing I have to offer God in return for his gifts to me is his gifts to me. The only thing I have to offer him is what he has given me. Is your head spinning yet? Do you have whiplash yet? Are you getting dizzy at these contrasts? We've seen that God uses the likes of the little to confound the large. We've seen that he uses the weak to confound the strong. We've seen that he uses the heavens to humble us as humans. And now contrast number three. Contrast number three. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. What's the third contrast? Under and over. Under and over. What is he saying here in verse 5? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Heavenly beings, that's Elohim. That's a word that is often translated God, capital G, God. And your translation may have God there, and that is a viable translation. But it could also refer to little g gods, who are not real gods, but they are little g gods. Or it can be angelic beings, heavenly beings. So some of the more reliable manuscripts translate this 
angelic beings. Hebrews 2, we're going to see in a moment, quotes Psalm 8 and translates it angelic beings when contrasting with Jesus. So I'm going to go with angelic beings. We've been made a little lower than the heavenly angelic beings. If you translate it as we're made a little lower than God, that's good. That simply refers to the imago Dei, the fact that we're created in his image. And when he says we're a little lower, I don't want you to think, okay, so God is here and we're just right here. I mean, you just told us that God's up here and we're down here. Not a little lower. It has the idea of time, temporal space. We are lower, much lower in rank than him. In comparison to God and the heavenly heights, this makes much more sense. God has made man a little lower than the heavenly angels. So now think back to David's question. What is man? He's now asking, what what is a man down here, like me, down here, have anything to do with you and the likes of you and your creatures up there? Again, whiplash. Though we are lower than, less than, the angelic beings, look at what he says about us. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Beloved, we are lower than the angels right now. They are in the heavens. They are serving as God's messengers of his grace and ministers of his will. And yet it is us, humankind, that are the crown of God's creation. This is what makes us different than the animals. This is what makes us different than the trees and the plants because we are the crown of God's creation. The whiplash. We look up high in adoration and we see the glories of creation. We look at ourselves in humiliation and he tells us that we're his crown. We're his glory. That is humility and also dignity and identity. And then he gives us responsibility. Responsibility. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the seas, and whatever passes along the path of the seas. So by now you're probably seeing after reading this that Psalm 8, these verses, 6, 7, and 8, is a commentary on another well-known passage in the Bible. What is David commenting on? Where are we going in the Bible here? To Genesis, to Genesis 1. You don't need to turn there, but listen to verse 26 through 28. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over every creeping thing that moves on the ground. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, in case you didn't catch it the first time. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, the fish and the birds and every living thing that moves on the earth. The creator has given delegated authority to the creature over the creation. That's glorious. We are the crown of his creation, and he gives us authority over creation. Infants and enemies, humans and heavens, 
under the heavens, over creation, over the earth. Are you dizzy yet? Commentator Alan Ross said, It is the glory of God to form a frail man from the dust of the ground and then entrust the dominion of the earth to him. Does that make much of you? No, that makes much of God, doesn't it? Are you still thinking big thoughts about yourself after this? I love what the Puritan said, Shall dust exalt itself? We are but dust, and yet we are the crown of his creation. So, he's left us in charge. All's well that ends well, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. We can't even get out of the garden without messing this up. God left Adam in charge to rule over the earth, to have dominion over these things, and he botched it, didn't he? Adam, our first representative, to whom God entrusted with his glorious delegation, messed it up. And this, my friends, is why we need Jesus. And so as we have been taught to answer the question, how does this psalm point to Jesus? This psalm not only points to Jesus, this psalm necessitates Jesus. This psalm requires Jesus come and fix what we have broken And so here's how Psalm 8 points to Jesus. I'm going to follow our three contrasts. I think this is in your bulletin. Jesus, number one, is the incarnate infant that came to conquer the ultimate enemy. Amen? Genesis 3 says he is the promised seed, the promised child of the woman that will crush the head of the enemy. And we know that unto us a child was born and the government is on his shoulder and that government and peace will, be, will have no end and on the throne of David and his kingdom will be established and upheld with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The baby, the creator, became created. That's number two. Jesus... The creator of the heavens became created as a human. He's not only the incarnate infant that came to conquer the enemy, he is the creator of the heavens that became created as a human. Colossians 1.16, Jesus, through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, left the glories of heaven, emptied himself, Philippians 2, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, creator became created. And number three, Jesus is the one humbled, who humbled himself under obedience to the point of death and now is the exalted one who will rule over the new heavens and the new earth. Let me read the rest of Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I mentioned that Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8. Let's conclude by looking at Hebrews 2 for a moment. Flip to Hebrews chapter 2 and we'll end. Jesus came to fix 
what Adam broke. Jesus came to fulfill what Adam could not. God gave dominion over the earth to Adam, and he messed it up before he even got out of the garden. In Hebrews chapter 2, again, listen, because the writer of Hebrews now takes Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus. He points us to Jesus from Psalm 8. Hebrews 2, verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, as it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, we know, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now here is, here is the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews is a huge sermon. So here's the pastor explaining Psalm 8 to us with Jesus in view. Now I'm putting, verse, verse 8, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him, to Jesus. He left nothing outside his control. At present, like right now, we do not see yet everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. How was he lower than the angels? He took on human form, right? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why? Because it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What's he saying here? Let me summarize and conclude. Because of sin, mankind has botched his dominion over the earth. Alan Ross says creation is no longer in submission but in chaos. And you just have to look around to agree with that. Jesus, the creator took on mortal flesh, being made a little lower than the angels, becoming the second Adam, lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live, that Adam failed before he got out of the garden. He died the cruel death on the cross that you and I deserve to pay for the sins that we committed, rose victoriously from the grave, and while all dominion and authority was given to Christ, and while all enemies have been defeated, all enemies have yet to be destroyed, because what is the last enemy to be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Death. Death is the last enemy to destroy. That's why Hebrews says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But when Jesus returns, praise God, when Jesus returns, all things will be made subject to him. He will rule and reign the new heavens and the new earth. Are you going to be there? Am I going to see you there? What will we be doing? Well, praising the Lord for sure, but also we will be co-regents with him. Let me read to you Revelation 5. Another song, they're singing around the throne, a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And Jesus, you have made them a kingdom of priests, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus, the ultimate reign and king, and we rule and reign with him, just as it was supposed to be in the garden. Amen? How do we end? O oh Lord, 
O our Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Praise God for his word. Let's pray and we'll sing a song of response. O Yahweh, our Adonai, we are dizzy with the truth that you have disclosed in this psalm. You have jerked us up and down into the heights of the heavens and the glories of creation, into the the depths of our own insignificance. You have reminded us of our dignity, being created in your image, being crowned with glory and honor, but you've also reminded us of our inability because of our sin. We can't do anything right apart from Christ. And so we thank you that Jesus was the baby that came to defeat the enemy. We thank you that Jesus was the creator that became created, left the heavens to become a human. And we thank you that he who subjected himself under the curse of sin will one day rule over the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more curse, no more crying, majesty and glory forever. Until that day, God, make us grateful. May we shout with David the glories of the heavens to those around us so that many will be made sons of glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.